to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I teach Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our academic dean and New Testament prof, Tommy Keene. Uh, also, Paul Jean, senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church and instructor in New Testament, Grace Sutanto, a professor of systematic theology, and we are here to continue our discussion that we started last week on the Ten Commandments. And so we did a little bit of an intro last week, guys, and now we're moving into them. So we're going to move into the first commandment. All right. So one thing that we discussed last week, and I think it's important to kind of be reminded of, you know, Tommy, you brought up the idea of the indicative imperative in that these commandments are coming out of the identity that Israel has as a redeemed people. And we're reminded of that over and over again, that it's because of who God has made them that they are called to respond accordingly. And so as we come to the first commandment, that you're to have no other gods before me, I want to kind of start with that. You know, Why is it important to know who God is and who he's made Israel so that we can rightly understand how to understand the first commandment? I mean, on the indicative imperative note, one of the one of the things that strikes me is, you know, I'm the Lord, your God. I am this like the first thing that God does is establish the kind of relationship that he sustains with Israel. And it's very valid. It's good. In fact, you know, I want to read that that first commandment in the kind of more broadly cosmic anthropological way of this is this is an imperative for all people. But it's striking to me, especially as we kind of think through the history of Israel, that the first thing that God establishes is I'm the Lord, your God, therefore have no other gods before me. Like it's, it's relationally grounded because of the unique relationship that we have. Therefore have no other gods before me. And that kind of sets up a a trajectory of like idolatry is adultery. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's something they keep coming back to. And the covenant is that you, you know, the covenant is like a marriage relationship, which I think a lot of people miss when they're reading prophets like Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah, who are using this marriage adultery. So uh, there's marriage um, metaphor and adultery metaphor so much that the covenant makes families, and you are now in the family of God. Sometimes as you're depicted as His son, and sometimes you're depicted as His wife, and He's a loving husband who desires, you know, singular affection. That's what it means for him to be a jealous God, right? To use the King James language, right? He, he desires our affection. Yeah, that, that language of covenant is really helpful. But I, I, when I, I, I think it's one of the things we miss when we think about the language of covenant is that, that relational aspect. I love the children's catechism. I mean, we've got um, all sorts of definitions of covenant that are out there. The Westminster standards have a definition of covenant. Um, I love the language of a, a you know, the, the um, a contract. What is it? Bound by blood, you know, that, that kind of language, but I love the, the children's catechism. It's a relationship that God establishes with us. Uh, very simple, very easy to understand. And I can map that onto, you know, everyday life. This, this is, a relationship. And in this relationship, God asks me to honor him above, above all other relationships. 
Yeah, and I think going with what you said, Tommy, at the beginning about the indicative imperative thing that having no other gods before God is actually consistent with reality. There is no other God, right? Because this really is a reality that there's only one God and he's the only one who's deserving of worship. If there are any other gods, they're not in the same category of being as this God is. This God is alone, the Holy One. He's set apart. In Exodus 15, 11, there is no one like him which means that he really is sui generis. He's in a class of his own, right? And I think what we got to point out is that this is relevant not just for the Israelites who were living in a polytheistic ancient Near East tradition and culture, but, but also even today that we can function as if there are other gods, even though in reality, there are no gods. Um, and so I, that's I, worth pointing out that, that in our culture, we, we still function as if there are other gods. Go ahead. I had a question about that, and I'd uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Gray, and and also Scott and uh, Paul, our Pauline scholar, because I was thinking about this on the drive in. Doesn't "You shall have no other gods before me" imply some sort of there are other gods? Like at least for Israel, is he is he lisping to Israel? Is he is? And I also think of like First Corinthians. 10 where paul says they worship uh what they worship as gods they're they're worshiping demons right in their ignorance you know i wonder how much should we bring in that kind of like ancient way of thinking where there's other spiritual forces and powers etc that's true i had also had in mind first corinthians 8 6 where these are the so-called gods but in reality paul is saying that they're they're actually nothing or in first corinthians 10 that he is distributing demonic powers to this and I think there's something to that as well, that there's demonic powers in place such that we treat creational realities as if they're divine. We've deified them and we've worshipped the creature rather than the creator in that sense. Or as Tim Keller would often say, if you're not living for God, you're living for something else. And that other thing becomes the idol, right? Or the thing that you've called God, even though it's not actually God. But I'd love to hear what Paul would say about this. This Paul? <laughs> yes, that Paul. That Paul commenting on Paul. You're you're our official Pauline scholar, Paul. Paul is the Pauline scholar. The way you guys talk about it is interesting. Um, Like, obviously, there are no other gods. So it does seem like God is uh, lisping. Like, he's entering the worldview of the Israelites who were in a polytheistic nation and starting from there. And then as uh, Revelation uh, continues in redemptive history, um, it's made evident that there is only one God. And at the same time, I do wonder if there is a component where as human beings, right, uh, we, because we're religious by nature, we look at people and things like they're gods. Like, and we see this just in sports. When we see like an amazing athlete, we, we think he's like a demigod or something. So I sometimes wonder if what's being said here is even then when you have these figures or people that you exalt as God, uh, maybe God is saying, okay, given that that's the human bent, right? You have to make sure that above anything and anyone else, you always exalt me as God. I mean, as we are talking, actually, this is just random thought, but as we were talking, I was thinking more about how it's so striking. Um, God begins with this uh, commandment by saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And one of the ways to read the rest of the Old Testament is how Israel cannot keep this commandment. Like it's it's almost funny. Like no, at every season they constantly violate this commandment, and this is why 
Uh, you know, Galatians talks about this. The law does have a function of just pointing to not just what we should do, but that we just cannot do the very thing that God wants us to do. And so, you know, that's just, it was just on my mind. Like, again, when you read the Old Testament, like Israel's inability to keep this commandment. And there, I think there's something that's very insightful from an anthropological perspective on like the first commandment. Well, it's interesting because they, this is the one that they break right away, you know, mm -hmm. as Moses yeah. sends down the mountain and they're worshiping the golden calf. And, and some have argued, well, the golden calf is, you know, we, we know that there's ancient representations. There's graffiti in the Sinai of, uh, you know, yod heh vav -Hey, the Adonai being depicted as a bull or as a calf. And so maybe they were trying to image God or something like that. So maybe this isn't really breaking the first, but it's a, you know, second commandment. But either way you look at it, it's the one that they immediately break as they're being given the law, right? Like before they can even get out the gate, they're breaking that one immediately. What's interesting to me too is that, you know, if you look at biblical history, particularly in the Old Testament, what do they often do? They, they often don't just totally set Adonai aside, right? And then go worship another God. But what do you do? You kind of hedge your bets, right? You, you have Adonai, you still, you still have the temple yeah. set up, you still have the sanctuary, you still have the ark. But you then also bring in like the Sumerian grain god Demuzi. You know, this is Ezekiel's vision of the temple and all the, the worship. The, there's this symbol of jealousy, which is probably something like an Asherah pole. And then you've got Demuzi and you've got these other deities also set up alongside Adonai to kind of hedge your bets. Like, I need to make sure my grain's taken care of or the rain or whatever. And that's why our Lord is clear, like that doesn't work in this system. It's not like I can hedge my bets or cover my bases. He says, I'm the one, I'm the one creator God. You know, this is all kind of working out the theology of Genesis and that Genesis story is so unique because there's no, there's no other gods present in the creation story. It's just, it's just the Lord. Yeah, it's really, I guess one of the things I kind of worry about is when, when we begin with the assumption that these things are nothing, like these other gods, they're non, they're, they're imaginary. They're, they're like, you know, they're non-substantive. Then are we kind of failing to read the, the urgency of this command? Like here, here's the Paul, here's the first uh, Corinthians 10. Here's the kind of like the, the verse from Paul. Am I saying that I, that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons and not to God. And I don't want to participate with, with demons. You know, if we have, it's not a God, but if we have this like cosmic force that is being worshipped in our midst among the people of God, that seems far more dangerous than worshipping an imaginary God, you know, something that has no substance, no reality to it. And I think in our culture, we kind of read this commandment, have no other gods before me. And, and to your point, Scott, like we read that as, okay, I need to love God more than money. I need to love God more than prestige and power, but I, but these, these substantive things that are in my life, they're not dangerous. Uh, it's only dangerous if I worship them as, as gods. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't have it anywhere I'm going with this, but it, it just strikes me as if I kind of like reimagine the world as there's, 
there are cosmic forces and principalities and powers at play that actually benefit from my worship of yeah. them oh, yeah. other than God, that suddenly the command has a kind of weight to it. There is something there about recovering the sort of supernatural vision of the ancient world and also the supernatural way in which you have to polemicize against that, right? So it's it's Paul against the gods and in the context of Israel and Exodus, it's it's the law here against the real temptation to worship these pagan idols who are actually representing demonic activity. It was really easy for, for, for me to represent this because in the summer, you know, going through Bali and actually seeing that every single restaurant has a small little idol at the bottom of it where, you know, they would be serving food to these idols, literally, so that the restaurants could be successful. And even every hotel, even no matter how modern it is, there's always still a temple dedicated to an idol. So that, again, the hotel or whatever else here would be free from um, financial ruin, free from uh, the destitutes just of life, and, and just be prosperous. So in that respect, there's definitely demonic activity here that we need to understand still exists even in the Western world, even when you're not in Bali, even when you're not in these sort of Eastern locations where the spiritual is still vividly represented by physical objects. So I, I think there's something there, Tommy. But I think we, we got to remember that when Paul is saying these things, yes, there's demonic activity, but these so-called gods are not, again, in the same category as this god. So no matter how substantive they are, to still worship them is foolish. And even though it is important to recognize that they are substantive, it's, it, it highlights more so the, the foolishness of human beings to direct ourselves towards these things which are not in the same category as God. So in other words, even though, you know, it, it's, 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 it sounds like we are undermining it by, by kind of undermining or lessening the demonic aspect of it, it but it, even though it sounds like that, it highlights, however, the foolishness of the human heart, that, that even when they're not actually substantive, we still are prone to bowing down to them rather than the true God, if that makes sense. Well, and I think, I think what's really important is as we're kind of tracking along with this, you'll find passages that both say that there are sort of spiritual realities behind idols and that there's nothing behind idols, even in the Old Testament. I mean, you'll find Isaiah saying they're nothing and you know, the psalmist saying they're nothing. And then you'll also see this kind of expectation of you know, spiritual power. And I mean, we have to remember the, the the cosmological structure of the Old Testament is one where you have God and he is the king who reigns supreme and alone in a council of spiritual beings, right? And this spiritual council in the Hebrew word is like the, the sod, the assembly, where the spiritual beings gather together. And we even see that it would have been expected that even like the Satan, Hasatan, the adversary would 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 hold, would come in and give reports and and that you had these spiritual realities. And I, and I think that actually gives us a really helpful background to what's going on. Sometimes the Bible is making one point and sometimes it's making another. If you're worshiping Baal because you think he has creator-like power, then he's no God, right? You got to understand he's nothing. There's nothing there, right? And yet also recognize, and that's to Gray's point, that there's no one like God. That's why it's such a common title and and. Uh, both uh, you know Mikael and the idea of uh, you know the, the Psalter saying who is like you who 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 are like you there's none like you this is what we call you know, the creator creature distinction and yet 
not acting, therefore, kind of, you know, demythologizing all idolatry and acting as if it's just sort of a human endeavor or something like that. But there are spiritual powers. Paul calls them principalities, right? These kind of spiritual realities behind uh, the scenes that many of us moderns like to act like don't happen and yet would have been common in the ancient world. I mean, here's a, so here's a question I have, you know, would an Israelite be able to make a distinction? We make a distinction between something like, um, you know, a, a, a God, you know, lower lower class G God and like an angel or a spiritual being. And I'm not sure that would have been an obvious distinction to make in the ancient world. I think what out of what the Lord is teaching us in the Ten Commandments uh, and throughout the Pentateuch is that he alone is the creator God who could be worshipped as the large case, uppercase G God, right? And all the rest, it's not that they're equals with him in his court or something like that, but they're all creatures too. And when you make a creature try to be like the creator, then now you're falling into the work of, of idolatry. Which is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter one, isn't it? That yeah. when we suppress the truth about God, we end up deifying the creature in its place of the creator. Yep. Yeah. And you could add you could add Acts 17 to that. You could add you could add First Corinthians to that. That you've got this this idea by Paul that all of you, whatever y'all are worshiping, you pagans, it's not the creator God, which is the only being worthy of the term God. And that ties it to the point you were making, Tommy, you know, so well, is that we do this too. You know, Brian Fickard uh, down at Covenant College, I remember when he taught up here, he, he made a point about sort of animism in sort of third world countries and how when you go there as a Westerner, you know, you're kind of shocked at the primitiveness of this animism. And then him having this realization that that's very similar actually to the way that we live today. We just are sophisticated enough not to call these things demons or demigods, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We call them stock market and, you know, uh, my it, retirement. That kind ahead. of demythologizes what we're doing. And, you know, it's, I, and I, we've, we've turned all of the, this idea of idolatry into an abstraction. Yeah. And as a result, we've lost we've lost its reality, its substantiveness. And, and I go back to the language of Paul's principalities and powers, you know, is, is the stock market is, is wealth. One of the oppressive principalities and powers that does damage on the earth. However, we think about it as a physical force with a mind behind it, or as a destructive force that has many minds behind it. It's still an idol that steals glory from God does harm in the world. And does that then kind of like re-mythologizing that idea help us kind of conceptualize the danger, the, the, the urgency of this command, both in terms of honoring God as God, but also in terms of, our, of loving our neighbor? Yeah, and that's, I think, the idea that, you know, there's nothing wrong with currency, right? It's when that becomes the source of my comfort and security in a way that I should be looking to my redeemer, right? There's nothing wrong with sex, but when that becomes the source of my comfort and security, now, now I've got a problem, you know? And I remember as a kid learning about these Israelites keep going back and worshiping Baal. And I'd be like, why go to Baal? Like, what does he have that Adonai doesn't have? And what he has is that he has a specific domain, right? He's the thundercloud God. And when you live in the Shephelah, you need that rain. Mm. And 
that's why he's attractive, you know, and we can totally relate to that. I can believe on one hand that God has you know, created the heavens and the earth and has accomplished for me reconciliation with the creator of the universe and say, but if I want to be happy today, I need to eat some good food. I want to have gas in my car, you know, all, you know, all these things, these other sources, you know, and I can start to lift those up uh, to the level of, yeah, idolatry. Yeah, I was reading Ron Williams on Augustine earlier today, and he was talking about Augustine's city of God and how he says, paradoxically, the best leader of a church or a nation is a sort of leader who would work for the church or the nation, but at the same time realize that even if the church or the nation were to pass away, he would be okay without them. That, that the best workers for the earthly city is the kind of person who recognizes that even if this particular earthly city or nation would pass away, I would be fine. I would still be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Hmm. Because he argues that if you're a leader who thinks that this nation or this church even is the be-all, end-all, and is the representation of the city of God and hence idolizes it without re recognizing that this is just earthly reality. It's temporal, like everything else, it's an earthly institution. Then this leader would do anything for this nation, would do anything yeah. for this institution. And hence he would sacrifice even his obedience to the law of God for the sake of the survival of this institution, for the yeah, sake of the survival of this nation. That's great. I Maybe that's yeah. kind of like the resolution of the paradox here of, of you know, to, to what extent is it wrong to to worship money or prestige or wealth or the state or all these other things? And it's not enough that, to obey the command. It's not enough to just worship God more, to honor God more than what we do is we honor him as the one who, from whom these good things come. It doesn't belong to Baal. It belongs to God. And so it needs to be uh, utilized in God's way. Um, yes. I, I serve, you know, the nation, not as not with the state as the supreme power, but with you know God as the supreme power. And so I serve under under God, as it were. And, yeah. and so all of those things need to be understood as subordinate to or from the creator. Yeah. And his will for yeah. our lives. And, and so that means that if, for example, you know, well, actually, we see this all the time being compromised when the church is so insecure about its existence that we end up hiding our sins to make ourselves look better so that our institution would become more of a thriving place, right? And if you do, if you idolize the institution, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to cover up sin, you're going to make yourself look better so that you think to yourself, this institution could continue to thrive. Mm -hmm. It's also striking how when we, you look at the rest of the Decalogue, the Commandments 5 through 10 in particular, God is really the the ultimate shepherd because he's he almost teases out you know the things that are good but that can become idols in our lives so when you when you think about the five commandments uh, and the ten commandments in light of the first commandment you think something like family um, you know even our own sense of uh, identity sex, money, all of those things. Those are the things that tend to become gods in our lives. And so it's helpful just to see how God knew probably that there would be ambiguity in our understanding of what this actually looks like. And so he lays out what you call themes that have just transcended every people group and time uh, to see that these are the things that we will idolize. These are good things that we will likely uh, put before and above God. 
you know, this speaks to some of the stories that we're seeing today about abuse in the church and even places where, um, you know, there seems to be a good thing happening and then it kind of gets uh, maybe too, too big for its own good. And in almost every case, you hear these stories about someone seeing something wrong, seeing some kind of corruption or abuse, and then being told, like, don't, don't say anything. The spirit's moving, right? Be, be, get on board with what the spirit's doing. You know, get on board with, with the, the kingdoms going forward. You know, don't, don't kind of mess it up. And that's a good, very subtle example, I think, you know, what you, you guys were just talking about, where you take you know, you take something that maybe at the outset is a good thing and then find yourself compromising your love of the Lord in order to kind of keep that good created thing going, you know, and there's a, the, be, be, because, you know, someone, you know, and, and the good thing would be maybe the kingdom or the gospel being proclaimed, but now you're starting to ignore the corruption and the abuse and the sin <clears throat> that you see in the group. And I think that's kind of a common thing in the church and it can be really hard. It can be really hard to actually kind of distinguish between, you know, what is a good and a faithful work and, you know, how do you deal with, uh, you know, corruption or things that ping your conscience in the midst of that work, you know, and this is where the rubber really hits the road. I think with these kind of teachings being reminded, I'm here to serve the Lord. I'm here to serve Jesus Christ and his gospel and no matter how much something may look good from the outside, you know, it, we're called to this kind of thoroughgoing love and worship and obedience to the Lord, you know, and you can't compromise that for the sake of what looks like kind of external success. You know, that movement mentality can be a really dangerous thing in the church. Yeah, I think, and I think what's happening there, there I mean, there's a lot going on and we can make a, we can make an idol of proclamation. We can make an idol of preaching the gospel as it were. But part of what's going on there, I wonder, is if we're making an idol of ourselves. Like, I'm the only one. I'm God's chosen one to get this message across. I'm the only one who can do that. And so in the end, you know, I, I've become the Messiah, as it were, and and then replaced. Right. G Jesus yeah. is the good shepherd. Yeah, right. And you do have you these. Think, okay, do you think ahead. we sort of do that, what Tommy just mentioned, um, in the way like Christian conferences are run. So I know this is, <laughs> but it's interesting that you always have the same speakers, right? And um, you, you, you have to ask the hard question, are we at least implicitly saying that only these individuals can really proclaim the message in this sort of way? Tommy, I don't know if that's what you meant, but because, your comment triggered that like having, maybe... having been invited to no conferences i i don't i don't have a comment <laughs> i know <laughs> we're we are the, we are so the no, lesser sometimes we could do that as a culture <laughs> we're, we're the lesser you know, culture, in that pantheon we that. <laughs> so right, you should scratch paul, that what, what, what would be the, <laughs> are you asking paul what would be the is there an idolatry that can even take place in the form of Christian celebrity? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, yeah that's basically like uh, maybe, you know, we don't think that of ourselves, you know, like people might not think I'm like God's Messiah, but it is interesting um, that of the countless speakers and preachers out there, there's only like a select five to 10 that are basically always the same speakers. And, 
you know, we have to at least ask the hard question, what is this conveying? Not even deliberately, but, you know, at least what impression does it make even unintentionally? Yeah. Anyway, but that's probably a tangent. No, I think that's a fair point. And I think that can happen at the level. I mean, it happens kind of maybe obviously at the level of the international conference, right? Where you're kind of sending the message that only a certain, a select group are kind of worthy. It can happen at the local church as well. And you have to be careful of that, you know, of sort of making, you know, confusing the Presbyterian system of government for a kind of, um, you know, hierarchy of those who are closer or farther away from God. You know, that's one of the things I, I actually got to participate in officer training yesterday at a small church. And one of the points we were talking about is that the pastor as noble of a calling as that is, and that's a, it's a noble calling. It's not meant to diminish it. We actually don't have the view that they're the best Christian in the church, right? They have a specific ordination in terms of that ordination that they've been called to, but they're not a demigod. They're not a vicar of Christ. Right. And it's an important thing to remember. I think both at that local level and at the national level. I think it's interesting how many times in both in the Old and New Testament, and, and maybe this is this discussion about how this happens in the church and in our, you know, in our own midst, as it were, in very natural ways that we don't question, kind of illustrates this fact, how subtle this kind of adultery can be. Um, I keep going back to First John, and as many of you know, like First John is a mystery to me. It's one of those books that I just kind of constantly puzzle over and I puzzle over why he ends the book little children keep yourselves from idols oh. she's not mentioned once yeah in the in the bulk of the discourse and I wonder if it's because or one aspect of that might be because of the subtlety with which we're moved to idolatry uh, revelation the same way you know almost all of that adultery language in revelation is is i mean i guess it's secondarily about actual adultery but it's actually about idolatry and how susceptible we are to depart from the one true god to the state or to whatever might bring us security and comfort in this life create created realities in this life and and the church isn't immune to that we want to we want to protect ourselves we want to protect our ministries so that we can get the gospel but then do we make a deal with the devil in doing that? Go ahead, Greg. You raised your hand. No, I was kind of, I was just doing this. That's exactly right. <laughs> Is oh, it? No. Yes. It's kind of hard. It's like you want to say something, but then everything's been said that I like so far. So what do I say now to contribute? What are the duties required by the first commandment team? Are you going to bring up the Westminster standards here? Maybe, maybe it's worth stating. I love the, the way the standards kind of construct this. I mean, as a, New Testament guy and like an exegete, I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to kind of like go beyond the text and do the negatively. It means this positively. It means this, but I really love that way that the standards kind of work out the sins of omission and the sins of commission in, in, in this, in its exposition of the of the Ten Commandments, it's not so. It's not to 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 our discussion. It's not just I need to avoid these other gods, but then there's this other question: How do I cultivate more love, O Christ, to Thee? How do I cultivate 
a genuine love of the one true God. Well, Tommy, I don't know if this is a, this is something I've been thinking a lot about and it answers the question a little bit indirectly. I think what has helped me first is to see how adulterous my heart is. Like um, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, okay, so I, I preach every week. So, which means, you know, I'm always immersed in preparing um, a text for Sunday. You know, I teach um, the Bible at a seminary. And so someone could argue I have every advantage to make sure that God is always at the forefront of at least my mind. Right? Mm, mm. And yet I'm struck by how so easily something, you know, anything, a situation, a, you might say a, an object like a car or like a house, an upgrade, and just anything can so easily becomes like more central to me. And prone to wander. And yeah, I mean, that's why I love that hymn where it says prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I can't even sing that last part because sometimes I wonder if I love God, why am I so prone to wander? But I think when we begin there, when we begin by recognizing like the depravity of our hearts, in turn, like the gospel does minister to us in an even more profound way. Because it's not like any of our adulterous inclinations uh, surprise God. And yet he responds to us with um, amazing love. And when you bring those two realities together, here is my adulterous heart, and here is my God that loves even the adulterer, right? That combination has a way of really just humbling us and and then making our love for God grow. And so I have found actually in a weird way, and again, I don't mean this in a pious, pious way, but just repentance has really helped me to live out the first commandment. And even then the glory goes to God because uh, I'm growing not because of my repentance, but because of the grace that God gives in my repentance. Yeah, that's good. I mean, if you read this, uh, I think in the in the logic of Deuteronomy, you know, right after the Ten Commandments, you have kind of like a rehashing of what the Ten Commandments require. And if if, if that reading of Deuteronomy is correct, and I kind of think it is, that Ten, ten Commandments in Deuteronomy five are kind of like a table of contents for everything that comes after. You you know, really the expo- exposition of this commandment is what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Those his interlocutors in the gospel, you know, and that. How do you apply this? Well, it's to love the Lord your God. And then, you know, how do you do the, but don't love other gods? Uh, you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your self and with all of your strength. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, you put them on your heart. You put these words on your heart and you talk about them on the way and you put them on your gateposts and your doorposts and you raise your kids accordingly. It's a whole life commandment. You know, and there is a kind of logic that all the other commandments come out of this commandment, which, Paul, to your point, just highlights again, you know, how short we fall of this commandment, like Israel, you know. And so I think you're absolutely right. You talk about this. It's this is not just what you do on Sunday morning. This is not just like how you do your quiet time. This is the whole of your life. You're putting the Lord before all these other things. And how do you respond as someone who falls short of that? You, you can only respond with repentance. 
you know, and I, I like how the I like how the psalmist takes us down that road. Uh, and he says, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart, right? Because I'm mm-hmm. failing in this regularly. See if there's a hurtful way in me. Uh, I like how he also says it's it's not about like hyper introspection. It's not it's not I'm going to search my heart over and over and over again, you know. But you, Lord, search my heart. You bring it to my attention. Draw me into a life of repentance, you know. And as uh, as Dort says, the canons of Dort said, that's that's how you'll persevere to the end. Is that you are regularly drawn back into repentance and restoration in the gospel. Squares with Luther too. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, "Repent," He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And you could read that in a kind of like pessimistic, negative, this is going to do destruction to my self-esteem kind of way. But in reality, because of the gospel and the resurrection, union with Christ, it's actually more love of Christ to thee. Yeah. It's interesting. We just talked about Dort in the class last week. And and I see, I think a lot of people read preservation or perseverance of the saints and they have this kind of vision of what the Christian life looks like. But it's interesting what Dort says. It's very simple. It's you're going to fail, be restored through repentance, you know, then you're going to fail again, then be restored through repentance. You know, it's, that's, that's the Christian life. That's what it means to make it to the end, to run the race. I mean, I totally agree with all of that. Um, I would also add something, hopefully that might be like very tangible in terms of daily practice. Uh, One of my areas of research that I like to do just on the side is studying like world-class athletes, musicians, or just successful entrepreneurs. I try to look at like different fields to see if there is a common denominator. And one thing that is striking and it aligns with even our discussion on the first commandment is that a lot of these individuals, um, they wake up fairly early and then they uh, do this exercise of like, reminding themselves of like their vision, what they want to accomplish, what's the ultimate goal. And, you know, we could say that that is their idol or that is their God. That's the thing that they are living for. And every morning they spend about 10, 15 minutes getting into the right mindset and then actually thoroughly vetting their schedules to make sure that everything is done for the sake of this, you know, goal. And uh, that's, you know, there is some value to beginning each day. Uh, You know, we tend to call it daily devotions or something along those lines where knowing that our hearts are prone to wander, uh, getting into the right mindset, obviously, by immersing ourselves in the word of God. But also, I think going through the day just for five, 10 minutes, especially with all the technology, we can look at Google Calendar and asking Am I doing even this unto the glory of God? You know, and I find that that kind of deliberateness uh, can be helpful. Another little practical thing that I've put, you know, well, I haven't put it into practice as much as I should, but uh, to for kind of isolating idols is to follow your grumbling if, without getting overly introspective. Uh, what do I grumble about? you know, on a daily basis? What am I kind of always anxious about or um, frustrated about? And if I can track that down, usually got an idol uh, at the root there. Well, yeah, I mean, I how about if you never grumble? Then you are a perfect man. <laughs> I think the ancillary of that is also, what, what are you, 
what are you legalistic about with other people? In other words, what are you harsh when someone breaks the rules? And then what do you also give a whole lot of grace to? In other words, if someone does uh, one thing bad and you think, hey, you know, it's understandable. <laughs> but when they do another thing bad, you're like, I can't believe it. You know, now you're starting to get a view on your uh, on your idols, I think. Oh, that's a good one. That's I don't one. like that one at all. Yeah, no, that that's that sounds right. Let's uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, this has been a great discussion. Anything to wrap it up? Anything on the first commandment that we need to uh, we need to hit to make sure that we don't miss something? But, you know, I have a thought. Maybe we can end like today's um, podcast in this way. I think that what's helpful when people hear commandments in general, but especially the uh, Ten Commandments, right, is to ask, do I struggle with this? Right. Do I struggle with this? But I think that that's almost a waste of time. Um, and what's a more fruitful like uh, question is to, uh, number one, assume, okay, I am violating this commandment. And then how? Um, you know, just being like a pastor, I noticed um, a lot of people spend so much time just thinking, ah, do I really struggle with this? Like, am I really, uh, you know, guilty of the first commandment? And usually that the contemplation ends there, whether it's because of time or whatever else. But it's more helpful not to like ask, do I struggle with this? But how does my disobedience tend to express itself that's a great point paul you know how is it not not am i am i breaking this commandment or am i not faithful to it but how am i being unfaithful to it and um that's where you know we 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 go to that life of prayer that life of reflection in the spirit well we're going to close now and we look forward to coming back next week to talk about uh, the second commandment please don't forget to join us also please don't forget to rate review and subscribe this podcast on any of the podcast providing services that you use. And if you'd like to learn more about Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and come have more interesting conversations like this one, uh, come check us out at rts.edu forward slash Washington. Until next week, take care. Take care.